Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship, to hear music, to pray together. Uh, The prayer you taught us, Jesus, all the different things that we've been able to do. I ask now, Father, that um, as you through Jesus told us that you would release your spirit, we pray that you would release your spirit to speak to our hearts. I pray the words, the thoughts, um, the word of God, the Bible would be real to our hearts and it would shape us and form us and make us, as we hear it, um, people who respond and become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been kind of caught up lately reading books of American history. Uh, I probably started back in my birthday when my daughter gave me a book on D-Day, and from that I started reading some things about Lincoln and and now about Washington and John Adams. And, And so it's been kind of interesting to note, especially as I was noting, reading about Lincoln, how God likes to take things that are unlikely and do the unlikely kind of takes those who seem to be rather, I I would say, almost insignificant and do significant things through. Uh, One of the things that you study and and you read about Lincoln in in one of the books called Presidential Anecdotes by a a man named Paul Bowler, he talks about Lincoln and he says, you know, Lincoln was, you know, was not a, a deeply admired and respected person often in his Life and, and he, he actually says no president has been vilified the way Lincoln was during the Civil War. He was attacked on all sides by abolitionists, negrophobes, state writers, strict constructionists, radicals, conservatives, armchair strategists, and people who just did not like his looks or resented his storytelling. Um, he, he took all kinds of hits. In fact, he, he himself um, loved to laugh. And, and I think it was kept, what kept him through some very difficult and, and, and discouraging days, um, kept him alive and bright and as, he, as he walked through some of those things. He, he mentioned at one time Senator Stephen A. Douglas called him a two-faced man. And Lincoln said, I leave it to my audience. If I had another face, do you think I would wear this one? He, he loved humor. And yet, um, as this writer writes, from the day of his inauguration to the day of his assassination, the invective was unrelenting. Lincoln was called an ape, a baboon, a buffoon, a clown, a usurper, a traitor, a tyrant, a monster, an idiot, a bigot, a demagogue, a lunatic, a despot, a blunderer, a charlatan, and a bully. In fact, one New York newspaper regularly referred to him as that hideous baboon at the other end of the avenue and said Barnum should buy and exhibit him as a zoological curiosity. And I go, you think our politics are bad these days? Unbelievable. And yet here is a man that uh, people around him would say. John Hay mentioned at one point, it was obvious that God's hand was on this man for a reason to lead this nation. And here is this guy who was a country bumpkin and grew up in what they would consider Hicksville at the time because he grew up in um, Kentucky, Illinois, way out in the western side. That was like the ends of the earth. And he always had to kind of um, live that kind of part, aspect down. And, and he would come in, this guy who seemed to have from, from no family, no significance, 
rose up and, and through it, God used him as a leader to unite a, a nation, to um, lead a country, to inspire a people, and to set a course for a whole lot of people till this day, and we still feel the effects. Now, the reason I bring that up is God loves to take people, raise them up as leaders, and as a result of raising those leaders up, he sets a course, he unites a group of people, and through those people he does great and, and, and wonderful works. That's what Micah is starting to say here. If you read Micah chapter 5, he talks about, which we looked at last week, there would be one who would be a Messiah, he would be a leader. Someday you people... As you are in the midst of, of, um, of this city of oppression, here is the people of God. God had called these people. They were to be a light to the world. They were to be the very people, the leaders were to set the other people free. People within their own land, instead of abusing and taking things from them and, and setting up a system that, that ended up hurting the weak and the vulnerable. Instead of setting up that system that would then become a light to the world, God has to, at this point, come through and says a nation is going to come. He's going to uproot these people who were supposed to be a display of his glory. But yet, someday, Micah chapter 5, he would raise up a Messiah, a leader. And so in those first five verses, you get this incredible picture of this person who comes from this place of insignificance, which what these verses are all about. If you look at Bethlehem, he says, though you, Bethlehem, who didn't even make the map of the Old Testament under a thousand people city, wasn't even in, on the map. And, and those of you people, you recognize it from this clan, a small clan from the people of Judah. Here will come a leader. And this leader will lead a people. This one who comes from insignificant parents will rise up and from him will come people who will also lead like he leads. That's what happens in chapter 5 as you go through verses 5 through 16. You'll notice that it ends here and he says this in verse 5, and he will be their peace. This Messiah who will come, he will himself be their peace, and he will bring about peace. And it is not necessarily an absence of stress. It's not the sense that you um, lack worry. It's, it's not the kind of peace that just brings a sense of equilibrium to your life. In the Old Testament, the word peace was the word shalom. And it was a very deep and rich word. It meant that it would bring to you, in fact, the, the um, theological lexicon says that shalom is, the word itself constitutes everything that is healthy and harmonious in life. In fact, it is the negation of lack on every level. It's what this leader came and said when he looked at the people and he said he was going to be a shepherd, the good shepherd. And he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to its abundance. That's shalom. That your relationship with God and that your relationships with others would then become ordered by God. Not that everything would be perfect, but that God, by his life and his, his developing of who you are and the boundaries within who you are, would be able to um, move through you in relationship to him and with other people. And that you yourself would lead like this leader, Jesus. And so Micah looks forward to a day when Jesus, the Messiah, comes and raises up a people 
who have become citizens of his kingdom. And they are the kind of people who, under the rule of this leader, will go out and establish his rule in the lives of other people. And so as you get into verses 5 through 16, you'll see this theme. There's this interplay between these people, us, who follow this leader who has come, and how this leader works through us. So you turn to chapter 5, verse 5, and it ends there, and he will be their peace. And then as you go on, it says, when invaded, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule or crush or demolish or break to pieces those who oppress and those systems that oppress. That's what this is getting at. And again, he notes, and he will deliver us. And then as you go to verse 7, he says, the remnant of Jacob. He says, there will be a group of people that will follow this leader, that will follow this leader, and it will be called the church. And the church isn't a building. It's a group of people. It's people like you and me who have come from this leader. And we look at as those who follow this leader throughout history have been called to do the same thing. So they become the remnant who live in the midst of many people or among the nations. And so there are pockets of people who will follow him all throughout the world. And these people, as it says in verse 5 and goes on through verse 15, will will actually do what the leader did. What's really wonderful about this is he says he will take people like you and me, who maybe come from some insignificant and obscure places, who maybe are the unlikely ones. It doesn't look like we'd be ones that would be able to move anything or crush anything or destroy anything. But he says, I will come, but those who follow me, and I will, as you get your life rightly ordered in relationship to me, begin to move through you, and my power will be released in you to do these kinds of things. And it'll be your hand, though. Always will be lifted up in triumph. So this amazing sense of, of integration of this one who has come, and it all comes from him, he's our peace, but through us he works. So that everywhere we live and where we have influence, we have an opportunity to lead like the leader. And God has made us fit to do so by his presence and power. So that you come to verses 10 through 15, and he says now, this is through people who will become totally dependent on me. That's why six times you'll note he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This isn't about you. This is merely about you becoming dependent on someone who pours his life through you. So the challenge, if you look at verses 5 through 6, and then we'll look at 7 um, through 8, and then, or 7 through 9, and then 10 through 15, is basically this. The first part, he says, the challenge is this, that we are to become like him. In a sense, we are protectors of boundaries, is what he talks about in these two verses. And then the next few verses, he talks about the fact that you will become, um, your assignment is that you are channels of blessings and bearers of truth. And then at the last part, he says, it is God's program. He's the one who purifies you as you totally depend on him. So let's take a look at this. Micah chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. He says, And he will be their peace when the Assyrians invade our land and marches through our fortresses. We will raise up against him seven shepherds or, or eight leaders of men. This is great hope for the people because these people had been watching for years, around 740 years before the birth of Christ to about 586. They continued to see the encroachment of this northern Assyrian army would be 
taking and diminishing their boundaries. More and more, they were losing their boundaries till eventually, at a certain point, the people were huddled again in, in cities like Jerusalem and other cities in the land. And they saw their boundaries completely overrun. And so this is really of hope. He says, when these Assyrians are advancing and they're in this point in history where they're seeing the Assyrians come, and this is God's will that this happens. He's allowing this to happen because he has to root out the, the stubborn, rebellious tendency of these leaders who wouldn't listen to his word. And he says, someday a leader will come. And when this leader does come and the, the enemy begins to encroach on those properties, not only will this leader be a protector of boundaries, And set people free. But far greater than that, you will become leaders. Seven, eight under shepherds, so to speak. And they will rule, he says. And and when they march against your fortresses, we will raise against you seven to eight leaders of men. And they will rule or crush the land of Assyria with the sword. And then he says the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Nimrod was basically in the Old Testament the word for Babylon. So what you have is Assyria, and it's interesting, Mike is making a prophetic statement here. He's saying someday there will be another land, Babylon. And Babylon, historically, was symbolic of the evil against God's people and against um, God himself. So often in Revelation, they'll refer to the great Babylon. So it became this, this name. So he says, here is the Assyrians, and, and here come the Babylonians, and yet he will deliver us. And when he invades our boundaries, our land... In marches into our borders. God orders a people who will be protectors of boundaries. And the Messiah would restore these boundaries. And those who hope in the Messiah will be raised up, seven or even eight. And they themselves will become boundary protectors. In biblical times, leaders had a sacred responsibility to protect boundaries. One of the... Um, Writers for the theological words of the Old Testament, when it uses and looks at the word boundary, it it explains a little bit about how important boundaries were in Old Testament times. This writer says, "In, in ancient Near East, there was at least on paper a great respect for another's boundaries, whether these were national boundaries or individual and private boundaries. To violate them is to violate something God has ordained. He has established the boundaries of all people, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. He has arranged the borders of the whole earth, Psalm 74, 17, or Psalm 104, verse 9. He has placed the sand as a boundary to the sea, Jeremiah 5, 22. God is the one who ordains this, and God is the one who moves it. So we have national boundaries. We also then have, he said, personal boundaries. Like some of you who have, have done any counseling at all, you'll, you'll, you'll begin to realize that, that often they'll talk about personal boundaries. You have physical boundaries. We talk about it to kids as bad touch, right? You have spiritual boundaries. You have emotional boundaries. You have relational boundaries in a marriage that you keep pure so that someone else doesn't come in and violate that marriage. And he says those things, in a sense, are God-given, and you're to protect them. And then he goes on, he says, It's little wonder, then, that the Bible prohibits the moving of a neighbor's ancient landmark. Deuteronomy 19.14. Whoever does this is to be cursed, according to Deuteronomy 27, verse 17. The offense, of course, was not a violation of tradition, but was stealing real estate. And he writes, and an unalienable real estate at that. 
So when Assyria violated the boundaries of the land promised to God's people, the Messiah's leaders, he says, someday those people are going to be seven or eight under shepherds, vice regents like the Messiah themselves. These people that follow this Lord Jesus will go out wherever they go and they will be people who protect the boundaries of others. And so Micah's point is this under uh, under the shepherd Messiah, there will be there will be raised up those who would offend in this sense, those who are oppressed, because that's what he's looking at. He's looking at all these people who have been living under oppression, where people's boundaries have been just walked over. And no one's cared for. They had no rights in the court system. They had no rights to stand up to do anything. What's interesting in the Old Testament is you see the Old Testament treats us like children. And so often when you read in the Old Testament, he's helping these people so that we someday will understand this. He, he uses Israel and he uses these physical boundaries as a way because it's concrete we can understand it. And, and just as a caveat, let me just say, I'm not saying that the land of Israel and the people of Israel won't be used for God someday yet in the future and that God's going to work through them. But I want you to catch this point. God specifically teaches children through these concrete lessons of physical boundaries. Because at some point in the New Testament, Jesus comes to us and he speaks to us as adults. And he says, when you understand these kind of physical boundaries and how God's involved and he wants you to understand as adults and you and I, that in God's grace and the way that he works, he puts together these kind of spiritual boundaries, these kind of personal boundaries, these kind of things that God gives to us and gives to us in systems that are to protect one another. And so he, he makes this very interesting statement that he's moving from physical and concrete things that he wants you to understand and wants us to understand when this Messiah comes day, someday. Now at this point, he's not, talking, he's not talking about physical boundaries as much as he's talking about the spiritual boundaries. The fact that we will be the kind of people that will go to those places where there are those who are oppressed and those who are made vulnerable and those who are poor and those who are weak. And we will stand up and we will be the ones to lift the oppression from their shoulders. And God is looking today for the seven and eight. God is looking for people who will be protectors of boundaries. And those who are oppressed, those who feel their boundaries overrun, those who have no one to stand up for them and no one to protect them and no one to come around them, they're looking for you and us, the seven and eight. I was reading in the Doris Kern Goodwin's, it's a 757-page tome. It's this huge book, um, Team of Rivals. I'm sure some of you have heard of it and seen it. The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. It was real popular about a year ago. It tells the story of Lincoln. It's a life filled with disappointment, heartache, and critics at every corner. And yet, as a thread kind of going through it, you see this incredible character of Lincoln growing and developing with a heart to want to unite the nation, to want to inspire people, to begin to set a course so that this freedom that was, that was established, this great experiment by Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Hamilton and all the rest, would, would, would someday not just have um, the course set then, but he would help set this course for the future that people would be able to live in freedom. So in it, there's the story of Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave. He's an abolitionist, obviously, against slavery. He's a harsh critic of Lincoln in the early days when Lincoln was first president. 
And he had an opportunity to meet Lincoln. In the first meeting, after he met with him, he ran to one of his friends and he couldn't, it says, suppress his excitement. As he said, he treated me as a man. He did not let me feel for a moment that there was any difference in the color of our skin. The president is a most remarkable man. I just, I, you, just you feel the sense of, of someone standing up for and respecting another person. A little bit later in the book, after Lincoln's famous second inaugural address, I don't think Lincoln had met really Frederick Douglass beyond that first time he knew about him. There was a large party at the White House, and they opened the doors to people, thousands of people. It's not like today you don't have these kind of x-ray scanners that, you know, people... Anybody could go in who wanted to go in. So thousands lined up after Lincoln's second inaugural address, and they had this huge party. And as thousands passed through to, to, to shake the president's hand, Frederick Douglass got in line, saw an entrance, and when he got up there, he wasn't admitted. You see, in that day, no black man was ever admitted to those kind of functions in the White House. And Douglas says he would always remember the events of that evening. On reaching the door, two policemen stationed there took me rudely by the arm and ordered me to stand back, for their directions were to admit no person of my color. Douglas assured the officers there must be some mistake, for no such order could have ever emanated from President Lincoln, and that if he knew... I was at the door. I know he would desire my admission. His assumption was later confirmed when he discovered there were no such orders from Mr. Lincoln or from anyone else. They were simply complying with an old custom boundary that they were unwilling to change. The impasse continued for a few minutes. Until Douglas recognized a gentleman who was going in and he asked him, he said, would you tell the president that that I'm unable to gain entry? And minutes later, the word came back to admit Douglas. And Douglas says, I walked into the spacious East Room amid the scene of elegance such as in this country I had never witnessed before. Douglas, he said, had no difficulty spotting Lincoln, who stood like a mountain pine high above all the others. He was a tall man. And he recalled in his grand simplicity, he stood there in homelike beauty. Recognizing me, even before I reached him, he exclaimed so that all people around him could hear. Here comes my friend Douglas. Taking me by the hand, he said, I am so glad to see you. I saw you in the crowd today, listening to my inaugural address. How did you like it? Saying this real loudly so everyone can hear. Douglas is embarrassed and he didn't want to detain the president in conversation. You can imagine the only black person amid the sea of white. There's thousands of people still waiting to shake his hand, the president's hand. But Lincoln wouldn't let him go. He insisted. He said, you must stop a little, Douglas. There's no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. I want to know what you think of this. And so for a moment, these two remarkable men stood together amid the sea of faces Mr. Lincoln, Douglas said finally, that was a sacred effort. Lincoln's face lit up with delight and he said, I'm glad you liked it, he replied and slapped him on the shoulder and started going on to the next man. Because he was a, he was a protector of boundaries. There's another story, and I, I just love this, so I'm going to read it to you as well. When Lincoln reached the landing near Richmond, just a few months before the Civil War ended, 
he was surrounded by a small group of black laborers and they were shouting, breath the Lord. There is the great Messiah. Glory. Hallelujah. And first one and then several others began to fall on their knees. Don't kneel to me, Lincoln said. And his voice was full of emotion. That's not right. Don't kneel to me. You must kneel to God only and thank him for the liberty which you will hereafter enjoy. In a sense, he's just saying, I am here because of what Jesus has done. And I'm just a protector of boundaries. And it says the men stood up, they joined hands, and they began to sing a hymn. The streets, which had been entirely deserted, became suddenly alive, they reported, with crowds of black people coming and tumbling and shouting in joy for one who was willing to go through all kinds of criticism and and take all kinds of heat and to be called all kinds of names and to have people question him again and again in order to set up a boundary so that people could be free. And were those gods protected? Were those gods delivered? Were those that God has called? He called Israel out of Egypt so that they might know this, this love of God. They might walk in this new heart of God and this new heart would begin to be developed and it would be developed through the children of Israel. And by the time the prophets came, they were to be the adults who understood that this was something that God wanted all people to know. And they were to be a light that shines the presence of God's grace and His truth and His saving power into their life so the saving power could go about and, and, and be protectors of people's boundaries. Whether it be a person who is being sexually abused or physically abused, whether it's in a family situation, whether there's abuse occurring within a whole family, whether it's a work situation, whether it's in a church environment, whether it's in a nation, wherever it is, these people would be raised up. And then as you go on to these next verses, 7 through 9, if our challenge is to become these, these seven or eight, these kind of people that follow Jesus and protect boundaries, he goes, that happens when you become and you, you understand that you are a channel of God's blessing and his powerful truth. That's kind of what he's saying here. If you look at these verses, the remnant of Jacob. You see, in the midst of the very people you live, this is not a big deal. This is not necessarily calling you to go to the mission field. This is calling you to see yourself as a missionary of one who will go wherever you go, midst of the people, among the nations. In this sense, where you live, you have an influence that you can make. Whether you know it or not, you're influencing people. It's just a matter of how. And he says, they will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which don't wait for man or linger for mankind. This picture of refreshment, this, this picture of the fact that you, through your life, as you live your life in relationship to him, become a channel of God's blessing into the lives of other people. And the wonderful thing about it, he says, it's not dependent on you, just like dew. No one turns the switch. You don't have that power. In verse 8, the remnant of Jacob, then he changes, will become among nations in the midst of many peoples. And he changes the, the simile here. It's an interesting thing. He says, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which mauls and mangles as its go, so that no one can rescue. So the first thing I want you to look at, verse 7, who are the remnant? The remnant is defined by Micah in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. And I, I just want to read it from Peterson's paraphrase in the message, because I like the way he says it. He says, in that great day, God says, I will round up all the hurt and homeless. 
Here's the remnant. Everyone I have bruised or banished, I will transform the battered into a company of the elite. I will make a strong nation out of the long lost, a showcase exhibit of God's rule and action as I rule from Mount Zion from here to eternity. In fact, they're the same ones, the remnant of the same ones that Jesus came for. When Jesus gave his first message, he walked into the, the town of Nazareth. He went to the synagogue. He was at the synagogue service, just like this, on a Sabbath Sunday morning. At a certain point, someone would read from the scroll. The scroll was handed to Jesus because he was becoming a rabbi. And people were beginning to acknowledge that he was a teacher. So they gave him the scroll. And when he stood up to read, as he's handed the scroll from the prophet of Isaiah, he opens it. He knew exactly where he wanted to go. He wanted to say who he was coming for. Who is the remnant that he in Micah was coming for? And as he unrolls it, he finds a place where it's written, God's Spirit's on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news. Here's the remnant. To the poor. He sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and to the recovery of sight to the blind. To set the burden and the battered free. To announce this is the year that God's going to act. And then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant and sat down. And every eye in the place was fastened on him. And he said to them, today, this scripture of Isaiah, in a sense, he's saying this scripture from Micah, this scripture from every one of the prophets is being fulfilled right now. This leader is being raised up and he's calling people like you and me, sevens and eights, to go around to be protectors of people's boundaries, to be channels of blessing. To be bearers of truthful power. And in a sense, he said, you've heard scripture make history. It just came true right now. And the remnant is nothing other than those who need Jesus. The lost, the broken, the desperate, the famished, dying of thirst. Those unable to ambitiously walk through life and make things happen by their own gifts and power. Those who are blind to the success of self-reliance, deaf to their own significance. People like you and me. That's why every once in a while I stop in a service and I have us look at one another and, and, you know, we look like we're maybe dressed fairly well and we look like, you know, we come in cars that are somewhat nice and we look around at one another and, and we just kind of assume they've got their act together, right? I mean, look at the person next to you. But the reality is this. We're really just a collection, a remnant of people who don't have our acts together, but we know who can get our act together. And who is willing to. And so when you look at this, you see this, this passage of Scripture. And you see this, what, what, I, what I find is interesting. If that's who the remnant is, here's what he says they do. They do exactly what Jesus did. That's what these verses are. And, and I love Micah. I mean, I really wish, I wish you could, I always feel like I wish you could study with me through the week. Because I don't get to share with you all the stuff. And you're probably glad. But I don't get to share with you. Some of the intricacy of this, of this, of this man's mind and, and God's work through this book. But I want you to note, there's a symmetrical, there's this symmetrical structure. And it's one of, of Micah's creative ways of emphasizing what our assignment truly is. First, he begins with an identical description of where God's people are located. The remnant in the midst of many people, verse 7. He does the same thing in verse 8. You see those two things? And then the next thing he does, he moves to two similes. But you have to notice these similes, when you look at them, they're really almost antithetical. They're opposed to each other. One is about refreshment, and one seems about like kind of this silly use of power and destruction. 
And so you get this idea of dew. He says that you're like this channel of refreshment, like dew in, in a, in a Mideastern land where it's dry and it's, it's desert-like conditions, and they, they long for it. If they didn't have the dew, they wouldn't be able to get the, the crops and the green, and it would just look dead. And if they didn't have those showers, those spring showers that would come, that would, that would raise up for the opportunity for the, the crops to grow, they wouldn't be able to live. But then it moves to this next analogy. They're channels of blessing, but he moves to this next analogy where he says not only will you be channels of blessing of the grace and refreshment of God, but you will be people that have incredible power that will be able to go in and you will be by the power of God and the truth spoken. The truth of God has the power in it to break down the oppression and the evil in these systems. Just like Lincoln stood, his truth was this. He would stand on the truth of what it means to respect the inalienable rights of a human being, and as a result of that standing on it, the power of God was released through lots of difficulty in the midst of many people, but freed people. And, and I think it's interesting because you see this picture of this young lion. Now, anybody have like young puppies, dogs, you know, bigger ones? They just like to show off their strength. We have a, a young, like two-year-old dog and about a nine or so-year-old dog, and this, and we've had, this is now twice we've had it happen where we had these, this young dog and this older dog kind of together um, in, in the last number of years. We've had two different situations like this, and I'm amazed at how often the young dog loves to bully and show off its strength. And what he's saying here is, you know, any of you who've lived in this um, culture of uh, in Israel, you you know what it means to stand at the flock of the sheep and you see this young lion. They just like to come in and they're not there to eat anything. They just like to show off their power. He's basically saying, if you look at this, your God is with you in such a way that he will allow your life to be a channel of blessing. And through you, through perseverance, he will actually allow for you to be a bearer of truth that will actually break down these systems. And when you look at Jesus, that's what he did. He consistently and deliberately put himself in places where he would see human suffering. And he would look at people. And when he looked at him, he was so moved with deep compassion. He saw them like sheep who were harassed without a shepherd. And he was broken by their brokenness. He looked in the eyes of those who were crippled and lame, lying in the dirt. He heard the cries as he's walking by of blind people shouting for mercy. Would you, would you, son of David, have mercy on me and heal me? He would look at a deformed leper, kind of hobble his way up to him and ask if you're willing. And he would reach out and he would actually, in compassion, touch them because he was one who came as a channel of blessing and a source of powerful truth. And he put himself before the crowd of human suffering and It wrecked him. He felt so fully and identified so deeply with people's suffering that he actually said, when you see people suffering and they seem insignificant and unimportant and yet you're moved to meet their need, it'll be like you're touching my need. It'll be like you're meeting my need. So that the glass of water or the article of clothing or the few hours of tutoring or the cans of food or the visit to a prisoner, or the meals that you serve, or whatever you do, it's as if you're doing it for me. I'll tell you about a, a guy named Frank. Um, I was told about this from a good friend of mine. He shared this story. He had gotten actually this letter, and, and this Frank shared this whole thing. He was, he's a lawyer in Miami. And Frank's wife talked to him um, one day and said, you know, we're in Miami, 
I would like to go to the Dominican Republic. I know this person there, and I'd like to look at their mission and see what they're doing. And he really didn't want to do it. And so they kind of went back and forth. And eventually he thought, you know, I'll take a few days off from my practice. I really don't want to go. But what I'll do is I'll go look at that real quickly with her. And then maybe we'll go scuba diving, get some R&R, and I'll be back. Well, he had no idea of the trip that he was really taking. Because while they were there, they found themselves with this doctor friend who showed them some of the things that he had been involved with in the Dominican Republic, which is just on the other side of Haiti, that island. And his doctor friend brought them to the third floor of a building. And they were unprepared for what they were about to see. They walked into a room reeling from the stench of human waste. There were dozens of children, some with cerebral palsy, some with Down syndrome, others with just other maladies that they hadn't even diagnosed. And the doctor had said that these kids had just been thrown out like garbage, which found in the street. Frank saw one boy who was about eight years old. He was being kept in a cage. It was about three feet long, three feet tall, and about four feet wide. And he couldn't understand it, so he asked his doctor, why is this boy in a cage? And he said, he told him, he said, he's hyperactive, and it's our only way to control him. And they didn't even know this boy's real name. And so this no-name boy lived with about 75 other naked, dehydrated, malformed, starving orphans. Human beings. And many lay in their own excrement and urine. And the stench, he said, was so bad he could, he could hardly, barely breathe. His wife saw a little boy, Dominico. He was about eight years of age. He was suffering some cerebral palsy, and he, she's watching as he just crawls up to him on his elbows and knees on the floor. They were overwhelmed with the suffering. He kind of says it just wrecked them. It was really hard to do a whole lot after that trip, he said. Because they're in this room, there's no running water, there's no air conditioning, there's no working toilets, there's broken windows, and there's walls that are decaying. And Frank said when they first got involved, the children would take turns eating. They'd actually, one child would eat on Monday and then not again until Wednesday. And no one ate on the weekend. A bath consisted of pouring a cup of cold water on a child, and most of them lay there tethered to beds or huddled in cages, untouched by the outside world, starving for human contact. Every single one of them was malnourished or dehydrated, and a number of them were close to death. And Frank said as he looked at it and he, he, he kept looking at him and he just didn't want to look into the suffering. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to stay in that. He wanted just to run from it. As he did, he just heard the voice of Jesus say, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And as he stood there, he said, God, I have to do something. And he and his wife, Lori, prayed and eventually they turned a, 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 into a, a venture, what they called Project Child Help, and they began to run it just when they first started out of their garage. And what they would do is recruit doctors and, and nurses to visit the Dominican Republic in that specific area where they were going, and they started collecting things, medicine, other things that they could. They were so moved by the suffering, like Jesus was. Like Micah said, someday people will come following this Savior who will be moved to be a channel of blessing, a bearer of truth, a protector of people's property and rights. 
that they became those kind of channels. And now when Frank and Lori go on vacation, they take 5,000 pounds of medicine and food and clothing to this orphanage. And they work with this doctor friend. In fact, American Airlines found out about what they were doing. They were bringing so much that they actually came to them and said they would bring it over for free on some of their flights because they had room. And now there's a little group of children, this little pocket of children in a certain place that eat meals three times a day. They get bathed every day. Someone touches them because somebody took what Jesus said seriously. And when I hear a story like this, it's humbling to me, and I want to run. But I ask myself, am I willing to have my heart broken? Do I avoid going to places where I'll be confronted with this kind of suffering? Will I go on mission trips so that God might move me by the needs of others? Do I avoid looking pictures of hungry children or watching certain documentaries? Because if I, if I do, I'll be sad. And I want to run and I don't want to look at it. And yet, Jesus, our leader, made it his mission to walk at least on a regular basis into the very face of suffering so that his heart would be broken and moved by the needs of those around him. And what I want to close with is, here's the wonderful truth, and I don't have time to go through these verses 10 through 15, but he's basically saying, in that day, and prophets say that because they don't say, someday maybe, they don't say, if possible, you get this? It's, it's, it's this sense of, this is not a human project. This is not some people in a church or a group of individuals who are following a guy named Jesus. This is God himself. This is his project. He's saying, in that day, this is for certain, there is going to be a day that Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, he'll begin to move through people's lives. Those people will be energized to be channels of blessing, and through them will come this powerful truth that will set others free as they work for them. And through that process, our hope is this. It's God's program. This is God. This is about God. All we are doing is saying, God, I want to be available. So when you come to this last few verses, you'll see, I will destroy, I will destroy, I will destroy, I will uproot. His whole point is this. Anything that you put your hope in that is human, that is through your own strategy, through your own defense mechanisms, whatever it is, if you will become vulnerable and available, God will use you because it's about Him and your dependency on Him. And so, like I said to the group at the first service, I love what God's doing among us. He's doing this. And I just appeal to you, if you want to be a part of that, it's as simple as is looking at and saying, I want to be a part of that day today. I just want to be available. I'm willing to be used. I'm going to ask us to stand and we're going to sing in closing a hymn that I just, um, I love because when I was really touched with God's grace and and saying, God, could I just be a person who is a channel that allows your grace and truth to pour to the lives of others? It was in, in my seminary days, I started singing this song because it is a basic statement that God would be so interested in me that he himself would leave his comfortable place in heaven and come down to get a hold of me. And I would just pray, God, 
Can I leave my comfort zones and can I get out to where you want me to be? And it may be just the person across the uh, aisle from you in school or it may be the person at work or it may be your own family that God's saying you need to take a look at the things that are necessary there. But whatever it is, I'm going to ask you to sing this in praise and, and open your heart to be available to him.